This is episode 132 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing Men's Roundup 2014, Endurance with Paul Tripp. This is session two, Saturday morning. Well, I want to start out this morning talking about some things that are on the table. Now, the reason I'm doing this is not because it'll make me rich. I'm salaried. Uh, but because I understand the conference syndrome. I do these things all the time. You'll be sitting on a Saturday morning, you'll say, this is wonderful material, and on Tuesday you don't remember it. So I want to talk about some things that are there, and then I want to give some things away. That was a very passive reaction. The concept, guys, in case you don't realize it, is free. I used to throw things out into the crowd. I was in Washington, D.C. I threw a DVD out into the crowd that I was giving away. It hit the one man who wasn't looking. There's about 1,600 guys there. Hit him in the face, right next to his nose. Cut him open. He had to get stitches. We gave him everything on the table. So we created these Frisbees. It's not actually a mustache, it's a mutation. I have three of them on my back. My mom had one right here, it was very sad. I could go on, but I'll stop. Uh, last night we talked about suffering. This is a DVD on suffering. It call, it's called When Suffering Enters Your Door. Again, if you're not suffering now, you will be someday. You're near somebody who is. The Bible is a treatise on suffering. This is divided into little uh, sessions for you, and there's a downloadable study guide in here that you can print as many times as you want. It's a wonderful resource to gather groups of men together and get your mind thinking biblically about suffering. Take that to the table, you'll get the DVD. That was very passive. Well, I also said that you live in a world that's dramatically broken, that doesn't operate the way God intended. And that's what this book is about. It's called Broken Down House, Living Productively in a World Gone Bad. It takes the picture of a disheveled house as being an accurate picture of the world that we now live in. We live in a broken down house, but the divine restorer has entered the house. Isn't that wonderful? How is it, what does it look like to live productively in this broken down world? Now I have to say, I believe in the sovereignty of God. He who gets it needs it. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Uh, there is way too much isolated, individualistic, Jesus and me Christianity in our world. Christianity is deeply relational. Your walk with God is a community project. And you need, to, you need to take that message to whatever Christian community you're in. That's what this series is about. Uh, you were never wired to do this thing by yourself. This is really, for all of us, a community project. And I'm going to run out here so I can get some into the cheap seats, guys. 
pay money for the better tickets next time. So exciting. If uh, you're God's child, you've been chosen not to be just a recipient of the work of His kingdom, but to be an instrument of this wor- work of His kingdom as well. Listen, ministry is not stepping out of your life into a moment of ministry and back out of your life after ministry. Your life is ministry. You've been called to live with a ministry mentality. That's what this book is about. Instruments in the Redeemer's hands. People in need of change, helping people in need of change. What does it look like to be part of what God is doing in the life of the person next to you? That's what this book is about. Listen, I believe the church of Jesus Christ is a sleeping giant. It's a giant, but it's sleeping. We need to mobilize the body of Christ for ministry. And that's what that book is about. Now, I'm going to say this. This sounds very negative, but you will understand from last night what I mean. One of the places where you're called to endure is your marriage. Wow, that's a dangerous thing to say. Turn off the cameras. Uh, Listen, one of the places where God will call you to wait... Wait with patience, wait with grace, wait with wisdom, wait with faithfulness is your marriage. And I think there are thousands of people who get married with unrealistic expectations. That's what this book is about. It's called, What Did You Expect? (laughs) Subtitled... Redeeming the Realities of Marriage. It's a very, very honest marriage book. As honest as you'll ever read. But it's not hopeless because it's rooted in the hope of the gospel. How are you doing? In terms of waiting in your marriage. It's also in a DVD form uh, filmed at a conference like this, again, formatted for a study guide. If I had that kind of aim, I'd probably be doing something else. Here's a, uh, here's a video about marriage. Saturates and preferred flavors. Preferred unsaturates for those concerned about the family diet. Plus, I think there are thousands of couples every week who get married with unrealistic expectations. Nobody has ever been married without being disappointed in some way. Part of the problem is Western culture dating. I think Western culture dating is just a step above used car sales. Because when I'm dating, the last thing I want is for this person to get to know me because I'm trying to sell myself to this person. I actually am attracted to that person not because I love him or love her, warts, difficulties, failures, brokenness, and all. I, I love myself and I love what that person will, will do for me. 
that attraction isn't love. As I'm essentially proposing that marriage is war. What I mean by that is not those skirmishes at the horizontal level between husbands and wives that so often are the content of marriage books, but that marriage is really the product of a deeper war. And that war is fought on the turf of my heart. Think about it. If you ask the average husband what's wrong with his marriage, he probably won't talk about himself. He'll talk about his wife. You ask the average wife what's wrong with her marriage, she probably won't talk about herself. She'll talk about her husband. And because they're buying into this delusion that my biggest problem is outside of me, not inside of me. Each of us carry into our marriages something that is fundamentally destructive to relationships. The Bible actually names it. It's called sin. Sin in its fundamental form is selfish. And so it puts inside of me antisocial instincts that are destructive to relationships. I wrote this book so that people would be able to look into the mirror of the Word of God and begin to see themselves as they actually are and begin to say, maybe it is me. Maybe there are things that I'm wanting, that I'm thinking, that I'm doing that are destructive to this relationship. When you can get a husband to that level of honesty, a wife to that level of honesty, you're at the edge of real good things for the marriage. Well, endurance is more than toughen it out. Endurance is more than hanging in there. Endurance is more than flexing your manly muscles in moments of difficulty. Endurance is living patiently and faithfully in the place where God has put you, the gospel that you say you believe. Endurance is living faithfully and patiently in the place where God has put you, the gospel that you say you believe. Now, last night we said this, that if you're going to endure, you have to understand where God has placed you. You have to understand your address. We looked at that passage in Romans 8 that lays out what the world is like between the already of your conversion and the not yet of your home going. It's a place where you will suffer, where the world won't operate the way God intended for it to operate, where you will be called to wait. It's a universal experience of the people of God waiting, where you won't wait alone because God has indwelt you by His Spirit. Whereas you're waiting, the purposes of God will march on, unshakable, unstoppable. 
And God will give you everything you need. It makes no sense that He would give you His Son and abandon you along the way. <clears throat> well, here's what we want to consider this morning. If you are going to endure, then you have to also understand what it is that God is working on, that God is doing right here, right now. If you had a pencil and a piece of paper and you were going to write down right now, this is what God is doing in the world right here, right now, what would you write? That's a rhetorical question meant to stimulate thought. You don't have to answer it aloud. What would you write? Maybe the two most important questions you could ever ask between the already and the not yet are these two questions. The first one is, what in the world is God doing? In case you hadn't realized it, life isn't about you. The first, the most important words in all of the Bible are the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Because if God's on site, everything changes. That's why your life hasn't worked according to your plan. Have you noticed that? Last month didn't work according to your plan. Last week didn't work according to your plan. From the look of some of you, this morning didn't work according to your plan. <laughs> Because there's someone who rules over all of these things who has a plan that he is fulfilling. What in the world is God doing? It's very hard to be able to endure in a gospel that I don't understand. It's very hard to be part of something that God is doing when I don't know what he's doing. What in the world is God doing? The second question is this. How in the world does He call me to respond to it? What is God doing and how does what God is doing define what God wants me to do in my everyday life? Now I want to take you to a very, very familiar passage of Scripture. It's a very familiar story, but it is provocative when you begin to unpack it. I want to set it this way. In between the already and the not yet, the single focus zeal of your Savior is to craft you into a man of faith. Did you hear what I said? In between the already and the not yet, the single focused zeal of your Savior is to craft you into a man of faith. That's all that he's working on. That's what he's expending all of his power, all of his covenant in energy, all of his glory, all of his love, all of his grace on this one focused thing that he would take us and turn us into people of faith. Because faith is not natural for us. Doubt is natural. Worry is natural. Envy is natural. Wondering what in the world is going on is natural. Putting in your brain that endless catalog of what ifs is natural. Wishing you had the life of somebody else is natural. <coughs> Doubting the goodness of God is natural. 
Feeling alone in the midst of your struggle is natural, but faith isn't natural for us. And so between the already and not yet, God is at work to craft you into a person of faith. Yes, you are fully redeemed by His blood. Yes, every sin, past, present, and future has been covered by His blood. Yes, you are fully accepted into His family. But you are not yet all that grace would make you to be. Write it down. I am not yet all that grace could make me to be. That's the agenda. It's not a comfortable life. It's not a predictable schedule. It's not people around that appreciate you. It's not cool clothes and a cool car and a nice house and all that stuff that just gets us so focused and so driven and so obsessed. God has one focus zeal to take people of unfaith and produce them to be people of faith. That's it. Now, how does he do that? We'll turn to Mark 6. I love the Gospel of Mark. I love how hard-hitting it is, how fast-paced it is. It's a very modern gospel in that way. Mark, Mark doesn't make many editorial comments. He's not like Luke. Luke was a doctor. Luke had all kinds of side comments to, set, to make. Mark just gives you history, 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 history. He sticks in your face that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he leaves you no place for neutrality. And there is this, this gospel equation that travels through Mark. I want to give it to you here. Here it is. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. DP plus DC equals EYN for you mathematicians in the room. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. But alongside of that revelation of the gospel in Jesus Christ is another theme that's very important and very interesting in Mark. Jesus has collected these disciples around him. And his desire for them, his plan for them, is not that they would just be recipients of the work of his kingdom. Now check this out. But that they would be instruments of the work of that kingdom as well. That's normative. That's all of us. No one here is just meant to be a recipient. Stop being a recipient. You are to receive His grace, but you are meant to be an instrument of His grace. Here's how it works. A God of glorious grace makes His invisible grace visible by sending people of grace to give grace to people who need grace. That's the plan. Now, the problem is that if these men are going to be part of something bigger than their own little set of desires, if they're going to be bigger, if they're going to live bigger than that, if they're going to be part of this kingdom work, then they have to be men of faith. But they're not men of faith. There's every indication that they're, they're just not men of faith. And so Jesus works with these men to craft them into men of faith so they're ready for the work that He's called them to, that work He's called you to as well. 
And, and the way Jesus would do this is he would introduce some kind of difficulty in the life of the, in the fallen world, and in the midst of that difficulty, he would reveal his glory. That's the model. Now, Mark 6, beginning with verse 45. Immediately he, Christ, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly amazed or astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now the disciples find themselves in another moment of difficulty. They're trying to row their way across the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida. They're facing an impossible headwind. They're facing angry seas. Uh, it's a situation that's futile and dangerous and discouraging and exhausting. If you look at the larger time clues in the passage, the disciples had probably been rowing for eight hours. Now, when you're when you See the disciples in that kind of difficulty. You ought to ask yourself, because you ought to read the Bible interactively, how do the disciples get themselves in this mess? <clears throat> Maybe they had just been disobedient. Maybe they were just full of themselves. Maybe they assigned themselves wisdom and strength that they didn't have. Maybe they just made another foolish choice. Well, no, that's not it. Look at verse 45. It says, Immediately he, Christ, made his disciples get into the boat. Now fasten your seatbelts, guys. Put on your crass helmets. Here we go. This mess is Christ's mess. This situation of futility and difficulty and potential danger is exactly where Jesus wants his disciples to be. They're in the storm precisely because they've been obedient to Christ. Now you ought to ask yourself, why? Why would this one of such love and mercy and grace and tenderness and patience ever want his disciples to be in this kind of situation or difficulty? Listen, if you can't answer that question right now, you don't have a clue what God's doing. Was that strong enough? You just don't. You see, Jesus knows something about the boys in the boat. He knows how self-righteous they can be. He knows how immature they can be. He knows how full of themselves they can be. He knows how much they confuse their little kingdom purposes with the purposes of His kingdom. So hear what I'm about to say. Jesus will take them where they have not chosen to go in order to produce in them what they could not achieve on their own. Guys, hear me. God will take you 
where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God will take you and you and you and you where you had no plan to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. You know what the Bible calls that? Grace. It's grace. I think there are many times where we're in difficulty and we're crying out, where is the grace of God? And we're getting it. But it's not the grace of relief. And it's not the grace of release. Largely those are to come. It's the grace of refinement because that's the grace that we need at this moment. Listen. If you're God's child and you're going through difficulty, you better not name that difficulty a sign of His unfaithfulness and inattention. That difficulty is a sure sign of the zeal of His redemptive love. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. As you're fellowshipping with one another, as you're in teaching and preaching, counseling, opportunities, we better become committed to teaching and preaching and counseling. Are you ready for this? The theology of uncomfortable grace. Because very often, this side of eternity, the grace of Christ comes to us in uncomfortable forms. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. These guys in that boat for those eight discouraging hours, eight dangerous hours, facing something they have no power to defeat, are not being ignored. They're not being rejected. They're being graced. Form fit. God is right now, Jesus right now in that moment, crafting faith in them. That's not an accident. Are you ready for this? That's a plan. Now notice what happens next. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. He came to them walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. You're way too passive. Don't try this at home. Now, here's what you need to understand. That walk is the linchpin of this passage. That walk is what makes complete sense out of this passage. That walk is the interpreter of everything this passage is about. If you don't understand that walk, you will never understand this passage. It amazes me that we can read these passages and we say, oh, isn't that wonderful? Jesus walked in the water and we go to the next passage. We have no sense of what the passage is teaching. That walk 
theologians would say, is a hermeneutic moment. It's a moment that interprets everything Jesus is about, everything he's intending to do in the lives of these men. That walk is profoundly significant. Now you say, why? Well, what in the world are you talking about? Two things. Here's the first thing. The minute Jesus takes that walk, you know this is Lord, God, King, Creator, Almighty. He can do anything with His creation He wants to do. This is the Lord. Bow down and worship. Because the average dude can't take that walk. If what Mark is trying to do in his gospel is demonstrate to you that Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the Son of God. Case closed, deal done, argument won. He's just walked on water. This is the Lord. Part of our problem with endurance is we forget who we're serving. We forget the glory of the Lord God Almighty who has invaded our lives by His grace. We forget that we're serving one who, if He wants to walk on water, can walk on water. Is your little details of your life too much for Him? Come on. Get a grip. I'm serious. There's very few guys in this room who suffer from having a God too big. Our problem is our God is too small. Some of us are serving a minuscule little deity who has little power whatsoever. Well, that's not the God of the Bible. This is a God of awesome power and awesome glory. If he wants to walk against wind, he can walk against wind. If he wants to walk against elements that you cannot stand upon, he can stand upon them. This is Lord God Almighty. This is the King Creator. Welcome to your Savior. This is who he is. Tuesday morning when your day is already a bad day because you spilled coffee on your shirt, you better remember this one. I'm serious. Because it puts life into proper perspective. When your child doesn't think you're the wisest thing on the universe, you ought to remember this one. Because it puts it in perspective. When your wife doesn't think your great idea is such a great idea after all, when she goes, hmm. <laughs> or my wife will say, can I give you another perspective? <laughs> no, you can't. I don't want another perspective. I want to be God. This is Lord God Almighty, King Creator. Bow down and worship. But even more to this process of craftiness, of craftiness into people of faith. Hear this. You've got to get what I'm going to say next. This is very, very important to understand. This is what breaks open this passage. If all Jesus wanted to do was relieve the difficulty, he wouldn't have had to take the walk. You hear what I said? 
If all Jesus wanted to do was relieve the difficulty, He wouldn't have had to take the walk. All He would have had to do is stand on the shore and say, Peace be still, and the wind would have died down, the waves would have calmed, the boys in the boat would have happily rolled their way to the rest of the, the, across the Sea of the Galilee to Bethsaida. The minute Jesus takes the walk, pay attention here, you know right away He's not after the difficulty, He's after the people in the middle of the difficulty. Now think about it. When you're going through difficulty, what's the single focus thing you pray for? I can tell you. I don't even need to ask you. Relief. You're not in the middle of a tough moment singing, Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. No, I don't think you're doing that. You're saying, God, if you love me, you'll remove this thing. If you take me out of this, I will sing, Great is thy faithfulness. I'll do that for you. How's that, Jesus? Got a deal? You see, now, now think about this. This is, so, this is amazing to think about. Let your mind go. Have the word picture in your brain. As Jesus is walking now, he's walking on that angry sea. He's walking into that possible headwind. Nothing has changed. The disciples are still in the boat. They're still bobbling up and down. They're still facing the discouragement danger of the moment. Nothing has changed. He's walking toward them because he's not after relieving the difficulty. He's after the disciples in the middle of the difficulty. The difficulty is not a difficulty. The difficulty is a tool. Jesus is not saying, oh my goodness, i got to do something. Look what they're in. Because he's in charge of the whole thing. He knows exactly where they are. He knows exactly what they're going through. It's a tool of grace. Uncomfortable grace, yes. But it's grace. And when it says he meant to pass by them, it doesn't mean that he needed a GPS. It means that Jesus wanted to take a big enough arc around that boat so all of the disciples would be sure to see him. Now back to your Bibles, or iPads, or iPhones, or whatever weird set off-brand you're carrying. What is it? Verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they immediately stood and sang the hallelujah chorus. <laughs> but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now here's the scene. Jesus is now standing next to the boat. Nothing in the scene has changed other than He has invaded that moment with His presence. The wind is still blowing. The waves are still crashing. The boat is still bobbling up and down. The disciples are still exhausted and terrified. And when the disciples see Him, they are totally unprepared 
for what they will see. So unprepared that they don't recognize him, they think they're seeing a ghost. Now, that's important. Because it's as if these men have no preparation for understanding who this one is who is now standing next to the boat. Think about this. They had watched him raise a little girl from the dead. She was dead dead, certifiably dead. They had watched him feed a large multitude with a little boy's lunch. They had actually watched him calm another storm, yet they were utterly unprepared for this moment. What about you? Don't be too mean, too hard on the guys in the boat. When you go through trial, where does your heart go? Do you panic all over again? Do you get angry all over again? Do you let discouragement wash over you all over again? Do you wonder what God is doing all over again? If you're God's child, you have seen and experienced the glory of God. Has it made a difference? This moment that should have been a moment of faith for them was a dramatic moment of unfaith, of terror, as if they had no clue who Jesus was and the kinds of things he could do. What about you? When tough times come your way, What do you say to you? What, you, what follows next, I think, is one of the most magnificent pictures of the patient, loving grace of Jesus that you have in all of the New Testament. I'm serious about that. Here's Jesus, who's manufactured this whole situation because he deeply loves these men. And because he's not willing for them to be men of unfaith. Because he wants for them more than they want for themselves. And here's Jesus now invading this moment by his grace. And here's the disciples utterly unprepared, utterly unthankful, thinking they've seen a ghost. And Jesus doesn't scream at them and say, I've had it. I've revealed my glory to you over and over and over again. I'm tired of revealing my glory to you, and you don't get it. Get out of the boat. I'm choosing new disciples. <laughs> no, what Jesus does is he speaks gorgeous words of grace to these men. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Well, you don't really understand what Jesus is saying there if you think that what he's saying is, don't worry, I'm here. That's something we would say to one of our children who's 
nervous about something. Don't worry, Dad's here. He's saying much, much more than that. What is actually happening here is Jesus in this moment, while the wind is still blowing and the waves are still crashing, while the boat is bobbling up and down and the disciples are exhausted and terrified, is, saying, is taking one of the names of God. He's saying this, don't you understand the I am is with you. The I am is here. The I am is here. The I am is here. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one on whom all the covenant promises rest, the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't you understand? Your life has been invaded by the presence and the grace of the I am. Don't you understand that it's impossible for you... (coughs) to ever be in a situation of difficulty by yourself. It's impossible for you to be, to be left to the small resources of your own wisdom and strength. It's impossible for you to be left to the dented resources of your own righteousness. It's impossible for you to ever be alone because your life has been invaded by the presence and the grace of the One who is the I Am. That's what faith is about. You believe that He exists, and He rewards those who seek Him. When you've just had a disastrous conversation with one of your children that's revealed the shocking rebelliousness of their heart, you better walk down the hallway and say, I am not in this moment by myself because my life has been invaded by the grace of the I am. When you've gone out on a weekend with your wife, you're hoping to be a good weekend and you've fought all the way to the hotel and are so discouraged and you think, will we ever get it right? You better say to yourself, I'm not in this marital moment by myself because my life has been invaded by the grace of the I am. If you're facing physical sickness and you feel more physically weak and vulnerable than you've ever felt in your life, you, you have more body awareness than you've ever felt. Some of you experience that scary body awareness. And everything you feel, you wonder if it's part of the disease you're facing, you better say to yourself, I'm not in this physical moment by myself because my life has been invaded by the grace of the I am. If you're facing financial trouble and you don't know how you're going to get yourself out, you better say to yourself, I'm not in this moment by myself because my life has been invaded by the grace of the I am. The I am is here. 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 And it's impossible for you to be by yourself. Now, what Jesus does next is he gets into the boat and it says, The wind ceased. And they were utterly amazed or astounded. Now I want you to understand that when Mark makes the editorial comment that they were amazed, it's not a compliment. 
Because he then says, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. I'm going to make a distinction for you that I think is important. There is a crucial, significant, even profound difference between amazement and faith. There's a crucial, huge, significant, profound difference between amazement and faith. You can be amazed by things that you don't actually put your faith in. I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and the habit of uh, families in Philadelphia is to go to the Jersey Shore for a family vacation. We call that going down the shore. I don't know why we say it that way, but we do. And we always would go to Ocean City, which is a very family-oriented vacation spot uh, with our family. But my children would always want to spend one night in Wildwood, New Jersey, aptly named. Wildwood is a crazy place. And there's a big boardwalk, and there are piers jutting out from the boardwalk, and on those piers are these huge amusement parks. And there's one ride there at Maury's Pier that just amazes me. It's this big 40, 50 foot high metal frame girder. From it are hanging elastic bands. The bottom is this pouch. It looks like the universe's biggest slingshot. And some otherwise sane human being will pay $7 to be strapped into that pouch and they pull him back and they launch him back and forth over the Atlantic Ocean in the night. It's one of those things where you text somebody, I did this right tonight, I almost died. Yeah. Now the first time I saw that ride, I was like this. My family went off to ride rides. I'm still... Now, I was amazed by that contraption, but I can tell you for sure. They're not going to strap Paul Tripp in that pouch and launch him over the Atlantic Ocean in the night. I will not put my faith in that contraption. You can be amazed by the theology of the Word of God and not be living by faith. You can be amazed by the sweep of the grand redemptive story in Scripture and not be living by faith. You can be amazed by the preaching and teaching you hear again and again in your church and not be living by faith. You can be amazed by the love of your small group and not be living by faith. You can be amazed by the wonderful worship music that you get to participate in and not be living by faith. There's a huge difference between amazement and faith. Amazement is when you've been taken beyond your categories, your normal categories, to explain or define something. Faith is an exercise of your heart that radically alters the way that you live. There's a difference between amazement and faith. It's not a compliment when Mark says they were utterly amazed. And then he says why. Because they did not understand a low, about the lows because their hearts were hardened. When he says they didn't understand about the lows, he's saying this. They didn't learn the lessons of the miracles of Jesus. Hear this. Every miracle that Jesus 
performed was meant to preach the gospel to the disciples of His power and glory and mercy. They hadn't learned the lessons. And then it tells us why. It says, and their hearts were hardened. They hadn't learned their lessons because their hearts were hard. Now this is important to understand. You can be a follower of Jesus Christ and have a hard heart. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 warns brothers, it's a passage written to Christians, that you not have a hard heart. You can be a believer and have a hard heart. And what's the picture? The picture is of a stony heart. Imagine that I had a stone in my hand right now, and I would push on that stone with all of my might. What do you think would happen? Well, look at the size of my arms. The answer is nothing. And so that picture of hard-heartedness is a picture of resistant to change. That's what it means to be hard-hearted. You're resistant to change. The, the, the forces of change, when pushed upon you, you resist. And why would someone ever resist change? Very clearly taught throughout the New Testament. We could do a whole study on this because we're all too satisfied with where we are. We're satisfied with where we are. Here I'm about to say, you need to understand that you serve a deeply dissatisfied Redeemer who will not relent. You, dis you serve a dis deeply dissatisfied Redeemer who will not relent till every microbe of sin is delivered from every cell of every heart of every one of His children. He will not relent until His work is done. Listen, the problem with the church of Jesus Christ is not dissatisfaction. The problem with the church of Jesus Christ is we're all too easily satisfied. That's our problem. And when you're satisfied... Are you ready for this? You quit enduring. Because enduring means you're still moving out after something, doesn't it? That's what endurance is about. The guy who's quit no longer endures. And so if you're satisfied, if you're just, you're just comfortable with where you are, then you, you've stopped enduring. Well, my wife and I gave birth. Well, actually, she gave birth. I was a participant in the process uh, to a son who just didn't understand the concept of gifts. We would, we would buy Justin a toy for his birthday or Christmas. He'd, he'd tear open the box, discard the toy, and play with the box. It drove me insane. And so after several experiences of that, I decided I would take my poor wife on a quest. A quest to find the quintessential Justin gift. A gift that I, a toy I knew he would play with. And so we went out this Christmas and we shopped and shopped and shopped, being out there way longer than we should have ever been. Please pray for my wife. And we finally found this toy. I was convinced that he would love it. When it came at Christmas time for him to open that gift, we were surely more excited than he would have ever been. 
and he tore open the box like a little boy would, not thinking of recycling, and actually began to play with a toy. I had such feelings of parental victory. I went into the kitchen to get something to drink and was uh, got engaged in a conversation with another one of my family members. And after a few minutes, I came out and he was sitting in the box. Now you think, why is this man telling us this cute family story at the end of this sermon? Here it is. Pay careful attention. You've been given the most awesome, wonderful, glorious gift that you could ever be given. It's a gift that's gorgeous from every perspective. It's the one gift, whether they know it or not, that every human being who's ever taken a breath desperately needs. It's the only gift that you could ever be given that has the possibility of radically changing you and everything about you. It is the glorious gift of gifts. It's the gift of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen to what I'm about to say. I'm convinced even in the face of that gift, many of us are content to play with the box. We're content with a little bit of theological knowledge. We're content with a little bit of biblical literacy. We're content with a little bit better parenting, a little bit better marriage. We're content with episodic moments of ministry. We're content with a few coins in the plate. We're content with a Christianity that lives most vibrantly on Sunday. But we're not holding on to this gift of grace with both hands and saying, I can't believe that I've been given this gift of grace. I want to know everything about this gift. I want to experience everything this gift has for me. I'm not letting go of this gift of grace till it's done everything it's meant to do for me. That's endurance. Guys, look at me. You already know that I'm going to be honest with you and I'm going to ask you to be honest. In this moment that we have of holiness and quiet, if I would watch that video of your life, would I say, this is a man who deeply treasures the gift of grace and is pursuing everything it has for him or would I say, there's a guy who's playing with the box? God's not working to make you get up in the morning with a smile and say, I love my life. Look at my nice house. Look at my cool kids. He's working to do this thing that men of unfaith would become men of faith. The men who treasure everything else in life would become men who actually treasure grace. And the fact that they treasure grace changes everything in their lives, the way that they approach everything in their life. Listen, are you holding on to that gift of grace with both hands, unwilling to let go till it's done everything it's meant to do for you, or are you playing with the box? Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for this provocative, helpful vignette from your life with the disciples. How it unpacks for you, for us, your zeal. And how amazed we are that our lives have been invaded by the presence and grace of the one who is the I am. How easy it is for us to lose sight of that. How easy it is for our desires and thoughts and energies to be gobbled up by the physical things of this world. How often we are content to play with the box. May we hold on to that gift of grace with both hands. Enduring a difficulty because we, we understand that that difficulty is not an interruption of what you're doing. It's a tool of what you're doing to craft us into what only grace could make us be. Oh, may we endure for your sake and your glory. Oh, Lamb, oh, Savior, oh, King, Jesus. Amen. God bless.